Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Who Killed Bob Crane? Part 1 On June 29, 1978, Bob Crane, popular star of the television comedy Hogan's Heroes, was found savagely bludgeoned to death in Scottsdale, Arizona. Mr. Crane was appearing at the Windmill Dinner Theater in a play called Beginner's Luck. The news soon reached his son, Robert Crane, who was a successful contributor to Playboy magazine at the time. The murder remains unsolved to this day. In 2015, Robert Crane wrote a combination autobiography, memoir, and true crime book with Christopher Fryer titled Crane, Sex, Celebrity, and My Father's Unsolved Murder. Robert Crane sat down with me for a candid interview about his life and the murder of his father. So, Robert, thank you so much for uh, joining me today on Murder Most Foul. And uh, my first question has to be, what brought you to writing this very personal uh, a book about your life and the death of your father? Um, it, it really started, I had uh, been interviewing people for uh, newspapers, remember them, and magazines, uh, including uh, Playboy. I had a, a nice little 20-year run at Playboy, uh, 10 years during the 80s, and then uh, 95 to 05. And that was because of a, an incredible editor named John Rezik out of Chicago. And we, we just had a ball. I got to interview all sorts of people. And uh, the person that really helped me on this, uh, co-author Christopher Fryer, we had done uh, a couple of books together. We did the first book on Jack Nicholson when we were, you know, this, this tall. We were just little children. No, we were in college. And uh, then we did a book together on Bruce Dern, who is you know, their buddy, uh, Dern and Nicholson worked together. And we just liked that era. We liked the old Hollywood and new Hollywood and all that stuff. Anyway, I had worked with Chris before and, uh, I asked him, what do you think of this, you know, doing this? 
And he said, yeah, you've got to be totally honest. And Chris played Martin Scorsese. So he kept going more, more. Why? Why did he do that? Well, why didn't, you know, that? And he kept pushing me. Come up with another word. I describe that. But, you know, and it became a pain in the butt. But if I had not had him, if I had tried to do this on my own, no way, no way. Chris Fryer, just boom, 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 boom. It took us five years. Um, and uh, uh, we also had a lot of fun doing it, too. So um, baby boomers like me, of course, uh, grew up on Hogan's Heroes. I watched every Friday night. Uh, but long before that, of course, um, your father uh, was uh, actually started in radio, uh, didn't he? My dad actually wanted to be a drummer first. I mean, he, he loved Gene Krupa and, uh, you know, Buddy Rich and people like those were his heroes. And uh, he did play, you know, in the, uh, I think it was the, Connecticut, I may have this wrong, Connecticut Symphony for a while. And uh, he had a little jazz band and stuff like that. But he knew it's fun, but I, I can't make a living, you know, like this. So he got involved in the radio and basically uh, doing everything from sweeping floors to, you know, that kind of thing, just to be at a radio station. And they finally gave him, you know, do, doing announcements or you know commercials or stuff like that and uh, uh i think this was in hornell <coughs> excuse me hornell new york a uh, small station and he just worked his way up then he changed stations and then the big break for him was wycc in bridgeport connecticut which is where i kind of come into the scene and uh uh, he had a, you know, uh, much like the show he later did in Los Angeles, uh, playing records, playing what he called gimmicks. Gimmicks were on uh, record, you know, the big old record, uh, vinyl. And they were either sound effects or vocal bites from, you know, a comedy album or something. And he was writing the whole thing, Jim, in his brain in the moment, no script, you know, whatever was going on that day was, was where he was driving toward. And in the meantime, he would have, uh, well, to give you an example, uh, Hertz commercial, let Hertz put you in the driver's seat. Remember the old commercial back in the fifties? Yes. Where the person has floated into the driver's seat. Um, so he's on the radio. He's playing the Hertz commercial, you know, the legitimate Hertz commercial, and he stops it right in the middle and plays. Now, some sponsors, some companies got upset. Other companies like Hertz said, wait a minute, this is kind of good because people are talking. Did you hear what Crane did today? He, he's got our rental car in an auto accident. What the, you know, so he would do things like that. You point out in, in your book that, uh, of course, your dad wanted to move up uh, in the marketplace. And uh, the next, uh, the closest place and the great place was New York City. Uh, but that the uh, station there really didn't have a place for him. Uh, but on their advice, he sent his tape out to L.A. And actually, uh, they liked it. And uh, 
you know, they did hire him, but uh, that was going to be a big move for your family. So for them to go out driving in their Oldsmobile across country, so they saw a little bit of the country too, to go to L.A. to meet with uh, the general manager of KNX in Los Angeles, and uh, the guy flipped. He said, yeah, you're, you know, we love this. You're crazy. You're young. You're, he was 28 at the time, 28. And uh, so then they had to find a place to live out here. And uh, I'm in Los Angeles right now, by the way. Uh, and they brought little Bobby with who was, uh, you know, I was five, I think, at the time. And we were the, the three pioneers coming out to L.A. And then uh, he went on to do uh, nine years, uh, morning radio, six to ten, uh, six days a week. And he also included on the last hour of the show, the nine to ten hour, uh, live guests. So he had everybody in Hollywood who was, I mean, from comedians, John, uh, Jonathan Winters, you know, Bob Newhart. Uh, to Lawrence Welk, to Dick Van Dyke, to, you know, all the stories. Marilyn Monroe he interviewed once. I actually found online a, um, a short audio clip of that uh, interview with uh, Marilyn Monroe. Uh, quality is not the best, again, recorded from an old radio show, but uh, let's listen to it for a second. For the life of us, we couldn't find the complete Marilyn Monroe interview, which we did about four or uh, it was about four years ago, I guess. We only managed to find two uh, short portions of the interview that we did with Marilyn out at 20th Century Fox. And at that time, she was making the picture, Let's Make Love, with uh, Eve Montan and Tony Randall. And she came into the room in a beautiful uh, slack outfit. I thought, well, is this a dancer outfit thing that you no, do? No, just a pair of slacks and sort of an old sweater. That's a nice old sweater. <laughs> nice old pair of sweater. Are we on, Bob? Yeah. Well, I've been rehearsing all day. Yeah. Um, I'm still out of breath. All right, I'll, I'll let you get your breath for just a minute there. Marilyn, I've often wondered, uh, being uh, the sex symbol of the movies, uh, did you, are you ever offended when, when men pass by and then whistle and things like that? I'm honored. Really? Of you, course. Do you think most women are? Of course. That's that's the high point of uh, is that a big compliment? Yes. Well, how about when you whistle at a girl or you feel like whistling? How is Jack Lemmon to work with? Wonderful. He's a wonderful actor. He's a very funny guy. You're working with a funny guy in the new picture, uh, Tony Randall. Yes, very funny. You want to know something? This will knock you back on on the, on the back of the couch. Here. I was I was supposed to test for this picture. You? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> did you mean that? Did you mean that with all the? was inferred by the you. <laughs> I read a lot into the line. Mm. No, really, the part that they finally gave to, gave to Tony Randall. Mm. The, the press agent part. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Um, well, Bob, it's nice meeting you, and uh, hope I see you again. <laughs> so now I am just three degrees of separation from Marilyn Monroe. Not bad. But as uh, cool as this was and how successful, of course, he was, he, he wanted something more, didn't he? Yeah. His, his acting heroes were Jack Lemmon and Gig Young. He loved them. He loved that they could do, a, you know, comedy, drama, you know, and he just, uh, 
he loved those guys. So he thought, hmm, well, maybe I can do radio in the morning and then do, you know, like a little local theater thing at night, you know, and, uh, and that's what happened. So out in the San Fernando Valley, uh, which is where we were living in Wooden Hills, they had a little theater, uh, long gone now, but back in the 50s, and they did, uh, you know, a couple weeks of a show or a month or whatever it was. And he basically pitched himself on, hey, I'll be able to talk about your theater every morning on my radio show. Hmm. Yes, we like that very much. Oh, yeah. So, needless to say, the little, whatever it was, 150-seat theater was packed every night because everybody who was listening to my, my dad's radio show drove to Woodland Hills in the valley and saw the play. And that's how it started. So, uh, somebody saw him there and offered... Um, uh, you know, small, like little one-liner or a voiceover or something like that on a, on a TV show or a movie. And uh, then a guy named Jerry Wald, who was a big uh, Hollywood producer, offered him a very small role as kind of an Ed McMahon to a talk show host uh, in um, Return to Peyton Place. Return to Peyton Place the sequel to Peyton Place. And my dad did it, and uh, you know, it just kept building like that, from a couple of lines to a bigger role, bigger role, bigger role, to the break, the break. Carl Reiner, the late, great uh, producer, writer, actor, director, Carl Reiner is on my dad's radio show talking about the Dick Van Dyke show, which is the hottest, show on TV, the hottest comedy for sure. And at the end of the show, Carl says, you know, there's a, we're doing an episode next week. Great role for you. The philandering husband. My dad, yeah. Are you kidding? To be a guest on the Dick Van Dyke show? Oh my God, that was the biggest thing. So my mom and I went and watched the, the filming. We, we sat in the audience. And uh, got some great laughs, you know, Mary Tyler Moore and all, you know, it's just A-class stuff, great script. And uh, John Rich, I think, directed the episode. And Tony Owen, the husband of Donna Reed, who was producing the Donna Reed show, which had been on for, oh, I guess, about five years at that point, said, okay, this guy, we need, you know, a little kick here to the show after five years. So they signed my dad and a, an actress named Anne McCray as the wacky neighbors to, to Donna and uh, uh, Carl. Carl Betts. Thank you, Carl Betts. So they were, they were on, uh, Anne McCray and my dad were on, uh, what they called seven out of 13 at that time. So for every 13 episodes, they would be in approximately half of them. But that worked out fine because my dad's still doing his radio show. So he, a makeup artist, is coming in, making him up while he's on the radio show live, 
then after the show's over, he runs across the street. Thank God it was right across the street. The old uh, Columbia Pictures, which was also Screen Gems, diagonally across the street from where he was. So he would run over there and then film all day on the Don Reed show. And he did this for uh, two years. Uh, he loved Donna and Carl Betts, had a great time. Ann McCray was wonderful. But again, uh, yeah, there's, there's got to be something. I want to be Jack Lemmon. I want to be Jack Lemmon. I want to be the wacky neighbor, you know. So uh, his agent sends him a script. And he's looking, wait, huh? World War II. No, 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 no. I want to do comedy. Agent said, this is a comedy. Huh? It was called The Heroes. The Heroes. My dad went in and reads with Werner Klumper. Boom. They just, a match made in heaven. They hit it off from the word go. Um, it just clicks. It just clicks. And Ed Feldman had read, you know, naturally, other people for Hogan, other people for Clank. And, but these two, boom, it just happened. So they went to CBS. Uh, pitched it, and uh, Al Ruddy, who's a producer, he's won a couple of uh, Oscars, uh, Godfather and uh, uh, Million Dollar Baby, maybe? Uh, I'm not sure. He was a co-creator with uh, Bernard Fine. And they went, They the Hogan's Heroes originally was in a prison, a federal prison. Uh, not funny. Didn't go over, you know, nobody to really root for it. So they thought, well, okay. And, uh, you know, I would say a little borrowing from uh, Solid 17 and, you know, Billy Wilder and William Holden and all those people. But they called it Solid 13. They go to CBS, pitch it, green light, boom. Film the pilot in black and white. Jim, only episode of Hogan's in black and white, the pilot. And I thought it looked great. I mean, it looked cold to me. It looked it looked like Germany in 1942. It looked great. Um, first sold, pilot immediately sold. So I, I think it was the one of the last to be pitched to CBS in the first sold. So they got the go ahead. My dad's still doing the radio show. So you know, it's nuts. He st they start filming in. June 1965, now in, co in color, because they're getting, uh, you know, more and more shows are, they're going color now on the networks. Uh, and they start filming in June. And by late August, there was such a good vibe on the set from the sponsors, from the Black Rock in Manhattan, CBS headquarters, that my dad said, yeah, I think this is now or never. And he couldn't keep doing both. He couldn't keep doing a radio show for four hours a day and then going to a show where he was the star of the show. I mean, that took a lot, a lot of time during the day. He couldn't do both anymore. So he uh, told the general manager, Bob Sutton, Bob Sutton at KNX, I got to go. I got to go. So... He did his final show on KNX the end of August, I believe, uh, 65. 
Uh, Hogan's debuted uh, the middle of September next month, and it became a top ten show first season. And uh, they got some Emmy nominations, and uh, my dad got an Emmy nomination for best actor. Werner got one for best supporting. Werner went on to win two uh, Oscar. Did I say Oscar? Emmy, Emmy, Emmy. Uh, two and uh, Werner went on to win two Emmys over the years for uh, best supporting actor in a comedy, and uh, they did six years. And and budgets weren't extravagant in those days, so you know even in uh, um, nineteen uh, you know sixty five money uh, they were they were tight. And you do have a quote in your book that I think is hysterical, and I'm going to read it. It says, uh, an episode was filmed in three days with a $300,000 budget. Hell, today that probably would not even cover Charlie Sheen's weekly budget for cocaine. Absolutely. I'll give you a very quick schedule, too, for anybody who's interested. Friday was the read. That was the new script. So everybody sat around the table like, you know, some some of you listening have seen the showbiz shots of reading the script for the first time. So they read the new episode on Friday. Monday was blocking. They went through all for the interiors only. They went through uh, most of the scenes for the interiors and camera blocked them. Where's the camera going to go? Where are the actors going to stand? All that stuff. Then the three days of shooting, one day was at Stalag 13, which was in Culver City, <laughs> Fine suburb of L.A., which was near the old MGM uh, studios and now uh, Sony Pictures. It was minutes away from there. And then they would do two days uh, interior, and that was in the heart of Hollywood. Uh, first at Paramount uh, Studios and then at Desilu Cahuenga. And that was it. That was, you know, one show per week. Boom, boom, boom. And they did 32 uh for uh, many of the seasons, I think it might have become a little less down to like 24 at the last season or something like that, but 32 a season. Now, I think you'll admit that your father was a, a bit of a rake. Yes. So let's talk about Helga Hilda. Hilda, Helga, oh. Helga Hilda. Yeah. Yes. Well, the, the first... Uh, Clink secretary, the first one was Helga. And that was, uh, now I'm blanking on her name. Horrible. This is what happens when you get old. Uh, I'll, I'll remember it though. She played Helga for the first season. Uh, unfortunately, my dad and she started kind of goofing around. A bit. So Helga's husband said, "Listen, it's either your, it's either Hogan's, or our marriage." And my dad was married too at the time to my mom. And uh, she said marriage, and she left. So season number two, uh, Patty Olson, Sigrid Valdez is her acting name. Uh, comes on as Hilda, Hilda. No mention of Helga leaving. You know, it's just a, it's just a new clink secretary, blonde. You know, the uh, pigtails, same thing. 
new one, Hilda. And uh, Patty, as I, I would call her, uh, also becomes my stepmother in a few years. Uh, so uh, Hogan and Clink uh, secretary at it again. Uh, but it, that, that's how it started. So uh, uh, Sigurd Waldus did the last five years of the show as Hilda. And of course, um, all good things uh, come to an end and Hogan's Heroes uh, did end. And um, all the actors, I'm sure, are now looking to their next gig and, and hoping that their celebrity and their popularity will, you know, get them to the next step. Um, but for some reason, that really didn't happen with your dad, did it? No, he, uh, he made a very bad movie called The Wicked Dreams of Paula Schultz and with Elkie Summer, Jim, Elkie Summer. And, of course, my friend and I had to visit the set you know, the day that she dove into a pond in the story because we were awful teenagers and we wanted to see Elkie. But they packaged uh, Werner, John Banner, who played Schultz, and Leon Askin. They got them in the movie. So it was like a Hogan's Heroes visits uh, this story, which was about... Uh, Oh, a pole vaulter, Elkie Summer, if you can believe that, pole vaulting over the wall, the Berlin Wall, to go to get to freedom. And uh, just a horrible movie, but that was made during Hogan's. That was a, a break in, you know, one of their uh, between seasons that they did that. Uh, my, my dad also uh, did the uh, ABC remake of uh, Arsenic and Old Lace. And he played the Cary Grant role, is it? But listen to this cast, Jim. Helen Hayes, Lillian Gish, Fred Gwynn, um, Sue Lyon, people like that and other supporting people. Uh, and they did a two-hour version of it in front of a live audience for ABC. Nobody watched it, unfortunately. But that was the closest my dad really got to um, A-lister actors and actresses was Arsenic and Olay. So your dad decides to, to continue to work and to, to make some money. He's going to do stock. Uh, but rather than uh, going from place to place with different uh, produced plays, he picks a one particular play that he's going to stick with and sort of uh, shop that around to the stock theaters out there. And the play uh, was called Beginner's Luck, uh, written by Norman Barish and Carol Moore. Again, perfect, of course, for dinner theater. And he basically said to them, can I just take your script and kind of run with it? And they had seen him do the show a few times, big laughs and having a good time. Uh, they, sure, sure, go. So it, it became my dad's go-to project when he had some free time and he had to make money because he, you know, there's bills going on. Um, so he, I don't want to say he rewrote it. He uh, adapted it. Thank you. Adapted, <laughs> refined it, refined it, yes. And he made it work, and he, and he also cut some characters. There were more characters in it when he first got the script, and he basically got it down to four characters, which made an incredible, quick, you know, yeah, hit the road, 
we'll all meet in, you know, Cincinnati. We're playing four weeks there at the dinner theater. He's got uh, three other people with him that he's worked with now off and on. Uh, my dad directed it, uh, but it didn't even need, need direction after the, the four of them have done, had done it hundreds of times. And that was his go-to project to, to make uh, some money and fill in um, time. And, and they got a lot of laughs. Uh, uh, people going there to, you know, to see Hogan naturally, but, um, the, the show was fun and light and an hour and a half real quick, get you out, you know. And, uh, that brings us to June, 1978, yeah. where he is doing the show, I believe in Scottsdale, Arizona. Yeah. Yes. And, um, you get the call. I get the call. Um, um, at, Okay, I, I have to go back here quickly to set sure. up. My dad and Hilda, Sigrid Valdis, uh, a.k.a. Patty, my, step, my now stepmother, are separated. She is living in their home in Westwood, not far from UCLA, nice neighborhood. He has taken a two-bedroom apartment blocks from there, still in Westwood, and I am living with him. So... It works out because I'm doing my little interview thing with you know, typing with my two fingers and playing, you know, my tape and doing that. And if he has to hit the road and do a play or whatever, and he's gone, I'm at the apartment with all his video equipment, camera equipment, records, uh, stereo equipment, all this stuff was there. So I was there. So we didn't need anybody to you know, a security to watch over it. So it worked out for both of us. So I'm at home, I'm typing up an interview I just did with Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase, star of Saturday Night Live, and now uh, doing his first movie with, uh, uh, called Foul Play with... Um, that was, was that Goldie Hawn? Goldie Hawn, thank you. Um, and uh, Chevy was great. I had a great time with him, and uh, he was still kind of a nice guy. And uh, it was nice to reporters, anyway, to me, and had a great time. I'm typing this up. I get a phone call. It's John Carpenter, not the movie director, but my dad's friend who sells videotape equipment, which is how my dad and Richard Dawson and Tom Smothers and Sammy Davis Jr. and a lot of other people in Hollywood uh, went to John Carpenter to get their videotape equipment. My dad was playing Scottsdale Dinner Theater for four weeks in June. Carpenter went into Phoenix on a sales trip to sell some equipment to the people or a company or whatever. Of course, he sees my dad they, after the show at night, they go to nightclubs, they go to bars, they, you know, party discos, they have their little uh, party time. So he said, he calls me up, says, uh, yeah, hey, Bobby, how are you, John? Yeah. And um, yeah. So he says, uh, Bobby, I'm back in L.A. Uh, saw your dad, had a great time. Uh, you know, if there's anything you need, uh, let me know. And uh so hung up on the phone for about 30 seconds. Jim, I did one of those where you look at the phone, you know, the old, 
you know, phone in the cradle deal, I actually look at the phone and think, huh? I mean, why did he just call me? What was this? To let me know he's back in L.A.? Okay. No reason to. So I sit there for a minute. I go back to typing. I go, I'm going to call my dad. So I call my dad's. It was an apartment. And some stories have said my dad was living in Scottsdale in an apartment. No. He had the theater's apartment. The Scottsdale Dinner Theater had an apartment for the quote-unquote star of the show to live in while they're performing. So he was there. So I, I said, I'm going to call my dad, just talk to him. I call him. woman answers the phone. Hi, um, who's this? It's, uh, and again, I'll remember her name from, uh, she was doing the show. She was uh, the uh, supporting actress who he's supposed to have an affair with in this play. And, uh, oh, hi, uh, it's Bobby. It's uh, Bob's son. Oh, yeah, hi. Is my dad around? Uh, no, no. I said, well, can you, it's nothing important. Can you let him know, you know, I call when he gets back? Sure. Hang up. Well, I find out later she is surrounded by Scottsdale Police Department people, detectives and, you know, and um, people with the, with the police department. So they have her answering the phone to see who's going to call. And um, I find this out much later. I hang up from that, not thinking, you know, anything is particularly weird. Yeah, sure, a co-star is, particularly a woman, would be at his apartment. No problem with that. And he ran out for something, and he'll be back. Yeah, okay. So, coincidentally, uh, I'm driving my grandmother, my dad's mother, who lives in Westwood, in, in her own apartment. I am driving her out to see my, my mother and stepdad and my two sisters. Yeah, no, it's Hollywood, isn't it, Jim? It's Hollywood. So we, I pick her up. We drive out to uh, beautiful Tarzana, California, out in the San Fernando Valley. And as we pull up in front, my stepdad, Chuck, who always has the greatest smile in the world, he's got a picture-perfect smile. He looks like hell is frozen over. And he looks at me and goes, Bobby, get in here. I'm thinking, what? You know, something happened to mom or what's going on? So my grandmother and I walk in. And again, let me set up my two sisters. My mom's mom, that grandmother. My dad's mom, that grandmother. Chuck, my stepdad, they're all there. And my mom, and she's fine. Chuck says, call your dad's attorney. What? So I call Lloyd Vaughn, my dad's attorney, Beverly Hills attorney. And he said, there's a rumor your dad's been shot. What? He says, I and <laughs> the Hollywood, Jim, the divorce attorney, so two attorneys, we're going to Phoenix. Do you want to go with? I said, absolutely. So I met them at the Burbank Airport in the Valley, and the three of us, William Goldstein was the divorce attorney, Lloyd Vaughn was my dad's attorney, and me. We go to 
fly to uh, Phoenix. And at this point, you don't know the condition of your father. You all, The only news you have is he's been shot, correct? Correct. Okay. Yeah. And it's such a shock to hear shot. It's like, what? You know, what, set up our family. We're the small town Connecticut family who watches Walter Cronkite news at night. And it's always somebody else getting killed or shot or Vietnam or whatever. It's never us. It's like most viewers, it's always somebody else. So we don't know anything about, you know, crime and all that kind of stuff and people dying. So as we land, uh, we're met by Barry Vassal, who's with the Scottsdale Police Department. He picks us up. We are riding into town from the airport and he turns around in his seat and look, looks it up, the three of us in the back seat and said, uh, by the way, your father is dead. So that's the first time the three of us look at each other. We go to the crime scene, if you can believe this. Now this is 1978 and this is Scottsdale, Arizona, where an average of two murders occur every year so it, this is a like a tsunami for them because it's hollywood and all this other stuff we get to the apartment and my dad's body is you know has been taken away but we proceed to walk through the crime scene so i'm going into there's a two-bedroom apartment i walk into the kitchen i open the refrigerator to see what's in there. You know, there's beer and other things. My dad did, didn't drink beer. He didn't, his big uh, alcoholic endeavor would be, you know, two screwdrivers, you know, a night, and he would nurse those. Didn't smoke, didn't, you know, didn't do drugs. Uh, it was just, he was Mr. Adrenaline. That's what he lived on. He didn't need anything. So I'm seeing stuff, you know, I'm not recognizing, well, maybe you had people over, I, you know, that, that would make sense. And I look at all of the equipment, you know, he's got all his uh, videotape decks and monitors and wires and cameras and all this stuff in the other room. Then I walked past his bedroom uh, where his body was that day earlier. And I remember looking at the bed and, uh, it looked like a Japanese flag to me. It was a big red circle right in the middle of the bed. And then I, I looked around the room a little bit, and it, it looked like specks of something on the, some of the walls. And that turned out to be a, a spatter and actually uh, some pieces of, of the brain, I guess, or skin that were, because it was hit twice, they came up with because there were two cuts on the side of his head. He was hit twice with a blunt object, which they later uh, deduced was a tripod, camera tripod, which is, you know, it's, it's uh, metal and it, you know, it, it can do some damage. Um, and then from there we went back, they checked us into a hotel or motel. And I remember sitting that night near the pool it was about 110 in phoenix and i uh had some beers with me i'm sitting out you know 
at the pool by myself, um, thinking our lives have changed forever. It's such a shock. But by the way, I, I reported into my family. I called them naturally to update them on what had happened. And all I heard as Chuck passed the news along to the room, I just heard shrieks and yelling and crying and all this stuff. But uh, Jim, I was the person to go there. I mean, it would not have made, my sisters were too young. My grandmother certainly would have, wouldn't have gone. My mom or stepdad wouldn't have gone. I was the person to go there to Phoenix and I was kind of reporting into them. And yeah, everything changed for the rest of our lives. And um, it's of course tasked to you to go to the morgue and I'm assuming as part of it, make an identification. Yes, yeah. Um, morgue was, I believe next the next morning and uh, I had never been to a morgue before. And I walked in there uh, to, to the room. They got me in there by myself and I saw him lying on the slab and uh, I went up to him and I just kind of panned all the way, you know, from his head. Oh, and by the way, the, the, uh, he was, his right side was facing me and he was hit on the left side. And of course it was all cleaned up and everything by then. So I never saw the cuts on his left side. I just, cause I didn't walk around. I was just on the right side of his body. Um, so I didn't see the cuts. Again, there was no blood or anything at this time. And uh, I just panned left to right, his head all the way down to his feet, and uh, looked at him. And then I uh, gave him a kiss on his right cheek. And I remember it felt like cool clay. You know, if anybody is in the audience here has worked with clay, you know, when you're putting it together and uh, it's got a hardness to it, but a coolness to the clay. And that's what his cheek was like. And, uh, yeah, that, it, you know, it, I was probably in a bit of a daze at that point, you know, since uh, the night before, the afternoon before. And then, uh, uh, then proceeded, you know, uh, interviews with the uh, local police, Scottsdale police, while I was there. And they talked to the attorneys and all that. And then I, I think we went home uh, later that day and by then uh and of course this is jim this is 1978 this is before cnn you know 24-hour news this is before all the you know cell phones and tweets and instagrams and all that stuff so it did take a little bit to get out there the word but when it did uh there were some local uh reporters in Los Angeles who got on it. Pat O'Brien. Remember Pat O'Brien, Entertainment Tonight and Access Hollywood? Pat O'Brien was at Channel 2 News in um, L.A. And I, I talked to him a few times. And uh, then it became kind of, a, you know, the Hollywood uh, unsolved murder uh, for a while, even though Scottsdale Police Department immediately went for John Carpenter from the first day. He was the one and only suspect they ever had. And I thought for a while, well, who gained anything by this murder? 
the only thing to be gained was financially. And that was Patty, who was, uh, they were estranged. They were going through a divorce. They had, they had attorneys. And she now gained uh, everything, which was not by no means any huge Hollywood fortune. But they had a nice house in Westwood. And I later found out he had a couple of insurance policies on himself. And, you know, she did okay. So she got all of it. No one else got anything financially. Uh, John Carpenter lost his buddy. So uh, I've always gone back and forth between Carpenter and Patty. And I don't know if the Scottsdale Police Department or the DA's office, Maricopa County uh, in Arizona, ever really seriously pursued Patty, but the timing was so interesting. Uh, but they just stayed with Carpenter the whole way, whole way. Of course, he denied it. Why would I kill my, my best friend and all that? He also had a very bad temper, we found out later on. Uh, some stories from his wife. He was married, actually, at the time. And uh, a, a son from a previous relationship talked about, you know, how we would lose it occasionally and try to get into, you know, yoga or karate or something and to channel this but we found about that i found out about that much later now um the the funeral was well attended by celebrities and the pallbearers several from hogan's heroes cast is that correct yes uh i remember uh carol o'connor who lived uh archie archie bunker lived across the street from the house that Patty was still living in, my dad used to live in, and they had become friends. And he was there, and uh, uh, yeah, the Hogan's people you mentioned, Ed, Edward Feldman, the producer, Larry Hovis, uh, Robert Clary uh, were among some of the people that were there. It, it was a good turnout, I would say, it, a very small church in uh, Westwood, uh, maybe 150 people. Um, and yeah, <laughs> I have another sad Hollywood story after this. My dad gets buried in uh, Chatsworth, which is a small town in North San Fernando Valley, next to my, his father, my grandfather. And he's there for, uh, I, may, I may be totally wrong about this, but he's there for about a year in the ground. One day, my sister Karen goes out to visit him. My dad's not there. Body gone, casket gone, hole in ground. So she goes down to the office. Uh, excuse me, I, I am, you know, my dad was buried here and I, I've been here before to, you know, visit his graveside and all that. Uh, he's not there. Do you know what happened to him? Oh, uh, we can't tell you. We can't tell you where he went. Really? Okay, is there anybody I can call or? Eventually, they get Patty's attorney on the phone. Patty has had my dad removed in casket and moved to Westwood, which is where she is. Uh, and there's a famous little cemetery right in the heart of Westwood, right? There's buildings all around it, but there's still a patch of ground where my dad's hero, Jack Lemon, is there. You know, Hugh Hefner is now there. Marilyn. Monroe, I believe, is there. People like that, big names. So Patty bought a plot 
for my dad and her. So that's where he is. Uh, thank you for letting us, the rest of the family know about that. End of part one.